Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rodner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today at 10.15 a.m., Thursday, February 7th. As always, news happens fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Good morning. Margot Sanger-Katz, The New York Times. Hello. And Alice Olstein of Politico. Hello. We also have our Bill of the Month interview later in the show with Kaiser Health News' Phil Galwitz. This month's patient found a minor mishap, fainting after a flu shot turned into a major bill from the emergency room. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. Apologies in advance for my cold, but I'm hoping my voice will hold up for the whole time. Mm -hmm. Uh, We finally got the State of the Union address this week after it got delayed by the government shutdown. And health was, if not the star of the speech, a solid supporting actor. Um, So let's start with drug prices. President Trump said, quote, it is unacceptable that Americans pay vastly more than other people in other countries for the exact same drugs often made in the exact same place. This is wrong, unfair, and together we can stop it. And we will fast. So the administration, in fact, has already made a pretty dramatic move uh, late last week to seriously alter the way Medicare and Medicaid pay for prescription drugs. Anna, you gave us an excellent preview of these changes during our live show. Thank you very much. Uh, For those who didn't see or hear that, tell us about what the administration is proposing about rebates. So um, and just to separate a little bit, he was talking um, a lot about global freeloading as something he's really upset about. He, the president. The president, yes. And um, so he he wants to find out a way for other countries to pay more so we can pay less. But that's a different topic. Um, on And on rebates, he – so rebates are what pharmacy benefit managers, they're the middlemen um, in this whole drug supply chain. Um, they – use them to negotiate with the drug makers to bring the prices, not really the prices, you know, the list prices down, but to bring down, you know, what what is paid for the drug. But it's what the PBM is, you know, is paying for the drug. So instead get, of negotiating a discount, which you right. would think, you know, here's your $100 drug, sell it to us for $80, they sell it for $100 and then give them $20 back later? Is that basically how it works? That's exactly right. And that's how a lot of the pharmacy benefit managers make their money. Um, And so that's why the program... So they keep the 20 bucks? They keep a lot of it. It's a secret program, so we don't really know how much, but they say that they do pass some on and it helps lower premiums um, because that's going to insurance companies um, to lower the premiums for people across the board. But if you have a really high-priced medication that you have to pay out of pocket for, you're paying a higher price, and that's much harder on on you, the patient. While you know the PBM is is pocketing that that rebate that they they got, um, and so what the administration has said is these rebates keep prices high because the PBM wants to make more money, so they want a higher rebate, so the price of the drug has to be higher. 
And so they, they have an incentive for drugs to be more expensive. They have exactly. a business incentive for drugs to and, be more expensive. And so do plans in some cases because they or they they create incentives for this because they negotiate with the PBM and they don't want the PBM to just pocket all the money. So they say you have to get us an average percentage rebate of X. And so in order for the PBMs to hit that, they don't want the list prices to come down because then they're going to have to negotiate an even lower net price. They want the list prices to keep going up so that the, on a percentage basis, it looks like they're doing a great job negotiating a better discount. Right. And what so what the administration has proposed to do um, last week at the end of the week, they, um, they said that they put out a proposal to um, eliminate the safe harbor uh, that allows for these rebates to happen and not run afoul of anti-kickback statute. Um, and But they would eliminate that in um, Medicare and managed, uh, me- managed care Medicaid, not for everyone. So if you're going into the commercial market, they need Congress to do something on that. And they'd create a new safe harbor where this discounts, not rebates, would be the, the way the system works. So it would be discounts that go directly to patients rather than the rebate system, and those would be allowed. So if this was to come into effect, the, um, the date is uh, January 1st, 2020, for the rebates not being allowed any longer. Do we, do we have a feel for what difference that could make? I mean, it would be a big deal, right? Well, it would be a big deal, and it's run into some opposition. Um, I mean, it would really rework the way the system works. And there's some thought, you know, Secretary Azar thinks that commercial plans, even without legislation, could follow just because there's, you know, there's sort of precedent for that that happening. Um, but the uh, there's been some... The private push- market adopts what Medicare does, exactly. basically. Yeah. Yeah. Just um, because people don't want to have two whole different ways whole different systems doing business. possibly running <laughs> yeah. foul because you mix something up or right. but um but the there's been some pushback from congress because it will raise premiums across the board and so what you're doing is you're saving people who have really high priced drugs a lot of money possibly but that has to be spread out then among the entire Medicare population. Um, so there, now that the the administration has said we're do- going after these rebates, we're going after these middlemen, and it's suddenly like, wait, is that the best way to do it? Um, is you know, so it's unclear that this would actually will make it through the whole process into so, a final draft. I think Margo. that there are like some interesting echoes um, of the way that Obamacare regulated health insurance plans that uh, I'm oversimplifying. But, I know, but I but, was just thinking the same but thing. I think this is a good way of thinking about it. So it, what Obamacare did is it said basically all insurance has to cover all of these different kinds of care. It can't have an out-of-pocket maximum. You have to allow sick people in. And what that did is it had a tendency to raise the average premium. So if you were a person who bought insurance before, uh, now you're getting these extra benefits. Maybe you don't need a benefit for maternity care, but you're paying a little bit more for it. Maybe you don't need as good a prescription drug benefit. You're paying more for it. But the really sick person who had a ton of out-of-pocket exposure or maybe couldn't get insured before, that person is getting a huge amount of benefit because they can buy insurance and that insurance covers more of their needs. So it sort of raises premiums but spreads out the risk across more people. So really sick people aren't having this unfair burden of of covering the high costs of being sick. This, in the most simplified version, is sort of like that. So if you imagine that every drug gets a 10% rebate, which is not true, then if you are someone who who has an illness with really expensive drugs, then you're basically going to 
you know, absorb that 10% discount into what you pay out of pocket at the pharmacy. And then that extra money is going to kind of be sprinkled around in higher premiums for all of the healthy people. But the complication that, uh, you know, some experts have pointed out to me is that which drugs have big rebates is like not always perfectly correlated with how expensive the drug is. So there are some expensive drugs where there are really big rebates. And so if you're a patient who takes that drug, you are going to benefit from this change. But there are other really expensive drugs where there is no competition or maybe the PBM didn't do a good job. There aren't big rebates. And so those people are still potentially going to continue to pay a really high price for their drugs. And it's not totally fair. You know, the redistribution is going to be a little bit lumpy. It's going to disproportionately benefit people who take expensive drugs with big rebates. And that's not like an identifiable political constituency. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I, w- I want to move on. But although related to that, the president also called for more transparency, not just in drug prices. And obviously, we could use some more transparency mm-hmm. in drug prices, but in insurance and hospital prices as well. That might have been a nod to the issue of surprise medical bills that we thought he might talk about, but didn't directly. Um, Anybody have any idea what the transparency stuff that he was talking about refers to? Yeah, I think we've seen a big push from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, from Seema Verma, the administrator of that agency, seems really interested in this issue. And indeed, we just saw at the beginning of the year, a new rule went into effect that said that all hospitals now have to list their sticker prices for everything that they do in a publicly identifiable, easily machine-readable file on their website. And there were some good stories uh, from my colleague Robert Pear, from our podcast buddy uh, Sarah Cliff and others about this, you know, if you could go onto any website now of any hospital and find somewhere on there a spreadsheet of all of the prices. Um, but, you know, basically every health economist said, like, great, this transparency is better than the hospital's not telling us. It's good to know this thing. But this is not particularly useful or actionable consumer information. And that's for a couple of reasons. One is that if you basically have any kind of insurance, you're not paying this price. And probably if you're low income and uninsured, you're not paying this price anyway because they have, you know, special programs for you. Also, uh, these are in the form of medical codes. So if you're unless you're like a coding expert, you don't really know which of these different things you're going to get when you're in the hospital. And, you know, finally, uh, most of us, when we're really sick, like we, we just go to the hospital and they, they do what they do. And, uh, you know, so I think if you're and going you fight in, about the bill afterwards, if you're going in for a very, very discreet service and you can get someone to, who's an expert to say, OK, like your knee replacement is going to and if it goes well, is going to be the following six codes, <laughs> uh, then you could like look up this price that you're not going to pay. But uh, for the rest of us, uh, it's not super helpful. So there is a big belief in this administration that the kind of veil of secrecy about prices for healthcare services are a real problem because they allow the companies to sort of do weird shenanigans and they prevent individuals from being good shoppers. You know, it's really hard to be a good shopper for your knee replacement if you have no idea what different healthcare providers are going to charge you. But so far, and and this rebate thing actually is sort of like that too. It's basically saying, let's have truth in advertising. The price that you pay at the pharmacy counter should actually be the price that your insurance company is also paying for the drug. There shouldn't be some secret price, some secret rebate that you don't know about. But I do think that it is very, very hard to have transparency around healthcare prices in a way that is useful to consumers and that can drive consumer behavior. There have been a number of experiments that have been done in recent years looking at 
how consumers respond to price information, even about very simple kind of routine, easily planned procedures. And it doesn't seem that, at least right now, people have enough comfort with those prices or enough ability to differentiate between the quality provided by different healthcare systems to use that information in a in a way that is going to steer what they purchase and then and then create pressure on the expensive places to lower their prices in response. No, I know this has been sort of the big frustration for conservatives in healthcare for 20 years now, which is they want the healthcare to be more market driven, but you can't it can't be market driven unless people know what it is that they're buying and what they're paying for, um, which is, you know, the, the continuing complaint. It's like, well, it doesn't work like other markets because you have no idea what anything costs or whether you need it or not. And I have like sort of conflicted views about this. My personal view is that, of course, this should all be transparent. And it's ridiculous that hospitals prices were some trade secret, especially considering that they are not a trade secret. Like those are not negotiated prices. If you're going into the hospital, you should be able to look up somewhere what is the price. Uh, at the same time, I do think that they have limited usefulness. I want to be able to, as a consumer, to know what my doctor is going to charge me for the services that they are going to do to me. It should not be some surprise that I discover in a bill months later that I have to pay. But I don't know that beyond giving me some peace of mind and some sense of transparency and fairness, that information is going to easily translate into lowering of health care costs. All right. Well, moving on, because we have way more to go. Um, President Trump also called, somewhat surprisingly, though it had been leaked earlier, uh, for an effort to eliminate HIV in the United States in the next decade. Again, not a lot of specifics yet. We may see more when we get a formal budget, which I think will be next month. Um, but AIDS and HIV have not been a priority for this administration. Do we know what prompted this? Alice? Well, um, not in terms of what prompted it, but what really struck me is how so many of the administration's own policies are in, in counteracting this goal. Um, I mean, everything from um, promoting uh, abstinence-only sex education above um, teaching uh, contraceptive education um, for... Um, policies that um, the conscience clause uh, rule that we're still expecting that could potentially, we don't know exactly what's in it, but it could potentially allow a care provider to refuse to treat um, someone with HIV because that person is gay or trans. Um, Yeah, there's just so many pieces of this. And um, uh, so I think until we see a budget, for one, we have no even top dollar amount um, both in the speech or in the follow-up information from HHS. Uh, we, we don't know anything about how much funding they're going to invest in. We don't know a lot about the specifics of this plan. Well, I think the president wanted to make um, a sweeping sort of statement and, you know, getting at, at HIV and eliminating it in 10 years is a, a big goal and a big promise that's possibly doable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that was right next to him saying you would put $500 million into um, research childhood on cancer. childhood cancer. Mm-hmm. I think there were just there. My sense was that there were big statements that he wanted to make. And I think that's kind of where it came from. Although the childhood, we don't know much about the HIV one. $500 million for childhood cancer is not a lot of money yes, by the, any means. The, the, NIH budget, I looked this up, is $39 billion this year. $500 million is, you know, better than nothing, but it's not going to make an enormous dent in the, right, right. In the cancer research so budget. I, I do think that I want to give the president some credit for identifying a public health goal that does feel like it is in the realm of the achievable. Mm-hmm. You guys may recall some of Obama's health care promises, including that they were going to cure cancer with a relatively small, I mean, large in dollar terms, small in you know, magnitude of what needs to be spent. Uh, 
investment, uh, talking about mapping the human brain. Those are really big, lofty goals. And I think that, you know, the president should inspire people to pursue important scientific pursuits. And it's not that the State of the Union shouldn't be a place to uh, promise something huge. But it is refreshing to me to see a president promise something that if everything lined up right and, and Congress got on board to fund the initiatives and they had a good plan and they had good personnel in place and they thought about the interplay between this goal and other policies mm-hmm. that they're enacting, this is a really important public health problem that where there's been tremendous progress, but where essentially the progress has sort of stalled. So, But I think Alice is, is absolutely right to say that just because there is a toolkit available and this is a goal that could be within reach in the next decade that we really have to watch closely to see whether or not they follow through with the policies that will really make a difference. And I just think from what the news we've seen this week, I'm I'm a little uh, more skeptical in terms of um, the needle exchange. Uh, the Justice Department moved to shut down a safe injection site in Pennsylvania. Um, so it, if they're, you know, approaching this in a more punitive manner and not in a public health manner, I think that could be a big um, impediment to reaching this um like we said, very doable goal. Well, uh, go ahead. Anna. Sorry. The well, I think this population that you know they would like to get on the prevention treatment and different things. A lot of that will require access to healthcare, and mm-hmm. I think the um, the one of the largest points then with with the president is he has been for overturning. Um, Obamacare, which would overturn a Medicaid expansion, which is how a lot more people with HIV got treatment, um, and that you know the administration has worked to kind of um, rein in that expansion in a lot of ways. So um, it, it, that might not work as well with the policies they're putting out there. Well, it it also oh, feels ahead. like to me. So I was on this call. I don't know if you guys were on this call with public health officials yesterday, but it was sort of all the people that really would run this initiative for the most part. And they seemed fully on board, quite thoughtful, very much in line with what public health researchers think would be the best approaches. I felt like there was a little bit of a disconnect from some of the rhetoric that we see coming out of other parts Mm -hmm. of the administration. And so I do wonder if there will be this internal tension between, say, a Justice Department that is concerned about (coughs) encouraging injection drug use and a public health apparatus that is trying to figure out how to reduce the transmission of infections through dirty needles. And, you know, we will just have to see whether or not everyone in the administration is now pointing in the same direction because Mm -hmm. the president has made this promise. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I really want to move on because we have one more big, big topic I want to touch on, and that's Medicaid, uh, Anna, that you were just talking about. Um, In both Utah and Idaho, two of the states where voters approved Medicaid expansion proposals by direct ballot measure last fall, the legislatures, the Republican-controlled legislatures, are now trying to scale those expansions back. In Utah, legislators want to expand coverage to a smaller population rather than everybody up to 138 percent of poverty, just those people with incomes below poverty. Um, in uh, Idaho, uh, the legislature wants to add a work requirement and premiums to the expansion population. I'm wondering what impact this might have, not just in Utah and Idaho, or obviously it would have a big impact, but on um, advocates in other states who are looking at this sort of ballot measure as a way to try and expand Medicaid there. Um, you know, we, we saw this in Maine where voters passed the, uh, passed the Medicaid expansion and the Republican governor just simply refused to implement it. Well, and, and then they elected a new governor who says, let's go. Um, so I, from what I've seen, it is not slowing down advocates trying to get expansion on the ballot. Um, my colleague had a report about 
uh, efforts in Florida to do this. A lot of big organizations are behind it, big labor unions, the indivisible groups. Um, so they're they're going for it. And I mean, it, it seems like the idea is that some expansion is better than no expansion and trying is better than not trying. And there's a lot of uninsured people who really need this care. And so even if there's a work requirement, even if this is scaled back, although in, in Utah, it just the irony struck me that Republican opposition to expansion um, always points to cost, but this new plan would cover fewer people at a higher cost to the state. <laughs> <laughs> well, not really. I mean, if you understand Compared what to. could be approved, you might say that, but they have also said that they would kill the plan if it was a less than 90% match. Right. So it depends on federal approval. Which is uncertain because the right. Trump administration has not approved partial expansion. I mean, they're essentially daring the Trump administration to approve something that it has so far declined to approve. Correct. Including when Utah asked for it. But they are not asking for something that's more expensive for fewer people. They're asking for something that's cheaper for fewer people that they're probably not going to get. <laughs> right. But the advocates are saying that the cost to having more people uninsured would be higher for the state. So it's all how you calculate it. I think it's interesting to think about these states in comparison with Maine, which you guys mentioned. So Maine is the first state that uh, asked for Medicaid expansion through a ballot initiative. And that was a state where the legislature had voted repeatedly to expand Medicaid and had just run into the governor's veto. And so now, that, as Alice says, there's a new governor and they're going to move forward. I think what we're learning in these states is that it really is uh, pretty hard to change an important piece of budgetary policy without the consent of the legislature. And I think that the ballot initiatives have obviously been conversation starters in these states. You could argue that what Utah is doing is a kind of poison pill that just kills the plan. Or you could argue that, like, now they're having to think about what kind of Medicaid expansion they really are comfortable with, where maybe they would have avoided that subject before. But, uh, you know, it, it's hard. Ballot initiatives uh, can be really powerful. But if they if the voters are approving something that elected officials don't want, elected officials still do have a lot of power. And um, Democrats in the House and Senate are moving forward with bills that would um, bring the match back to 100 percent for the In the state. House and Senate, U.S. Congress. In the House and Senate of the U.S. Congress, true, yes. Um, and so it would make it a bigger incentive for states that have yeah, waited we should, to expand. We should point out the way the way the Medicaid expansion worked. The first three years, states got 100 percent. So basically they didn't have to pay anything for this expanded population. It is slowly ratcheting down to 90 percent. Mm-hmm. It's still a better deal for this population than for everybody else that that's on Medicaid in states. Um, but it was... It was not the first three years you do it. It was the first three years of the program, which was 2014, 2015, 2016. So that what the Congress is trying to do is say for those, what it, were we up to like 14 states that haven't expanded? If you expand, you will get 100 percent for the first three years and then it will ratchet down like I wouldn't hold my yes. breath for that one. Yeah, oh, no, 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 no. Not, not in the Senate anyways. <laughs> the House right. could pass it. Margo, your extra credit is also about Medicaid. So why don't you go ahead and yeah, talk about that Yeah, I wanted now. to really commend this article that made me extremely jealous from uh, Noam Lee at the LA Times, the headline is, In Rush to Revamp Medicaid, Trump Officials Bend Rules That Protect Patients. And what he did is he looked at all of the state proposals to add work requirements to Medicaid, and he also looked at all the ones that had been approved. So when they're approved, there's has to be a complex plan about how it's going to be implemented and what are the rules going to be and how much checking in is CMS going to do and what kind of evaluation there is going to be. And what he found is that even though CMS said, the reason that they wanted to pers- to allow these work requirements is to study the question about whether adding a work requirement might 
improve health and increase people's insurance status uh, that they have actually had no monitoring provisions of any sort that look at what the effects are on coverage or on health of Medicaid beneficiaries as a result of these policies. And and what that means, basically, is that we're never going to really know whether these experiments were successful or not. Generally speaking, these kinds of waivers are not supposed to be just the ability for states to change the Medicaid program for no reason. They are supposed to be changing the Medicaid program in order to test some kind of hypothesis about how to better deliver care to their Medicaid beneficiaries. Now, of course, we know that many of these things are just, you know, state preferences. We would rather have a policy like this than like that. And there's some negotiation about what they can kind of get CMS to allow them to do. There are tons of these 1115 waivers, many, many different flavors of Medicaid around the country as a result of this policy. But historically and generally speaking, CMS has required that there be oversight and evaluation so that If it turns out that the thesis that underlies the waiver is not true, that somehow the goals of the Medicaid program are being undermined by the policy, then they have the ability to pull the plug or tweak the program or not approve another state that brings a similar proposal. So uh, anyway, just Noam's story just really pointed out that this administration seems not very interested in whether or not this experiment works, but very interested in just approving them in more and more states. All right. One last topic really quick. Um, It's a study in the policy journal Health Affairs from a group of researchers led by Harvard's David Cutler, a former health advisor to President Obama when he was a candidate. Um, Margo, what's important about this study? It's about prevention. Yeah. So this study is a little bit complicated in its methodology, and I'm looking forward to talking with more experts about exactly how they did this analysis and whether everyone thinks that it is totally well done. But Health Affairs published it, and they have a good peer review process. What this study suggests is that prevention in the form of medications to treat risk factors for cardiac disease did such a good job of preventing bad cardiac outcomes that it actually saved Medicare money. We're going through this period in which Medicare spending is slowed down tremendously from what we've seen in the past. There have been various theories about what causes it, but they essentially found that about half of the slowdown is due to reductions in these serious cardiac events, and that about half of those reductions can be attributed to these preventive treatments. So the reason why this is kind of a mind-blowing study is that all of us who study health policy and write about it have been told for years that prevention almost never pays. Except for kids. Vaccines for kids. There are are isolated examples, but generally speaking, when you give a preventive service to people, it improves their health. It reduces their risk of disease and disability. And that is a really good thing. I don't want to make it seem like prevention is a bad idea. You know, we don't treat people after they got the heart attack because it saves Medicare money. We treat them because we want them to be healthy and to have a great life. But it costs a lot of money. Uh, For prevention, we tend to have this different standard, which is that it's supposed to not just improve health, but save money. And And what we find is it really usually doesn't. Usually what happens is you have to give prevention to lots and lots of people, only some of whom are going to go on to have an expensive illness. And so the cost of treating all those extra people People who never would have gotten sick uh, outweigh the benefits of preventing bad outcomes among the people who would have gotten sick. So anyway, this is this paper is really exciting because it suggests that maybe there are cases, important cases, where prevention really pays. And I just think there are also some interesting political resonances around this paper that make me think it's going to be talked about a lot. So one is that the mechanism for these savings was drugs. 
Um, And so, you know, we're engaged in a kind of high stakes debate about the cost of pharmaceuticals and whether they're worth it and the cost to consumers for pharmaceuticals, as the president mentioned uh, this week. And this is an example where, like, drugs are really worth it. We have this weird system where we often pay a lot out of pocket for our pharmaceutical benefits or they're negotiated separately on the side as they are in Medicare. You know, you buy just a drug plan. But actually, you know, a lot of pharmaceutical drugs do have the effect of reducing spending in other parts of the healthcare system. So I imagine that the pharmaceutical industry is quite delighted to see this study. Um, Also... Uh, This is the sort of win-win of, oh, if we give everyone prevention, it's going to save money, is an argument that advocates for universal health care really like to make. And I suspect that, you know, as we continue in our debate about single-payer health care, people will talk about this and say, you know, Medicare expanded to give people drug coverage. They got this drug coverage. It enabled them to get these drugs that they couldn't get before. And lo and behold, we're seeing all of these great savings in the Medicare. So why not do that for everyone? Let's get everyone under the tent. Let's get them all this great prevention. That's going to save money down the line. So what I say to that is not all prevention saves money. We shouldn't have that expectation about all of it. Maybe it does sometimes, but there are still a lot of benefits uh, to giving people prevention because it makes them healthier. A lot of health economists already saying, be careful. It's one study, (laughs) one situation. And I think to Margot's point about drug pricing, the question I have and I don't know the answer is what if, you know, these drugs that are taken for, say, high cholesterol or high blood pressure are generic and they're very cheap. What if they were just on the market now and, you know, cost 100 times more than they do? You know, does that make a difference? in the cost benefit. It makes a difference, but does it change the cost benefit? Does it eliminate the savings? Yeah. We will have to see. I'm sure there will be more studies along the lines. Okay, that is the news for the week. Now here is our Bill of the Month interview with KHN's Phil Galewitz. Then we'll come back and do the rest of our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my colleague, Phil Galewitz, senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News, who wrote the latest Bill of the Month story. So, Phil, this month's patient didn't have the most exotic medical problem. He fainted after getting a flu shot, but he certainly got a big bill for a short visit to a hospital emergency room. Tell us who he is, where he's from, and what happened. Sure, Julie. Uh, This is a story about Matt Gleason, who lives in Charlotte, North Carolina, with uh, his wife and his two children. And he's a worked for an information technology firm down there as a as an analyst. And uh, unfortunately, he went in one day uh, last fall for a flu shot. And he had gotten the flu the year earlier and said, hey, they're offering this flu shot for free at work. Why don't I go in and get the shot? He got the shot. And unfortunately, he got a little more than he bargained for. It's not totally unusual, but he fainted a few minutes after having the shot. And then as he came to, he started vomiting. And uh, the nurse who gave him the shot and some of his colleagues were concerned enough that they called 911. And that led him down the road to getting a pretty substantial hospital bill. So what happened? They called the ambulance, took him to the hospital. He was at the hospital. And then what happened there? He got to the hospital just to check him out, make sure it wasn't anything really serious. He was having a heart attack. So he got there. They gave him... Um, an EKG, uh, a blood test, a urine analysis. Um, of course, he had to wait five or six hours, so he got to the hospital about four o'clock. Um, all the tests uh, came back normal, and uh, by ten thirty, he was on his way back home after after a long day at the hospital. 
A few weeks later, though, the bill came in. That just was my next question. And the bill came in at, at top $4,700. Uh, the biggest part of that bill was just the entry fee to the emergency room, which was nearly $3,000. He was coded a level five on a six-point scale, with six being the most severe. So he got this. So that was a big bill. And unfortunately for Matt, um, he had a $4,000 deductible. Um, that he hadn't yet started paying in 2018. So the large majority of this bill for the hospital bill, he had to pay himself. Was his insurance company any help? Um, His insurance company helped with the bill for the ambulance and and, and for the physician. But for the hospital care, um, it wasn't really. The deductible was what it was. The insurer looked at it. The prices were not unusual, even though to the average person, these appear really expensive. Uh, so in this case, uh, the actual hospital bill that he had to pay, the insurance company couldn't do anything about it. Matt appealed to the hospital and, and asked, you know, why was I coded such a high level? I was, you know, by the time he had gotten to the hospital, he was walking around and he appeared relatively okay, like he wasn't in major distress or anything. And he spent most of his time in the waiting room, right? Right, right. The hospital told him because he had these four tests that were given to him, that that automatically put him at the level five, no matter what, no matter what his status was. So how much did he eventually have to pay? So he has had to pay uh, about $4,000 out of his pocket. Matt said it's not going to bankrupt him. It's not going to you know, change his lifestyle, $4,000. But it was pretty much money he had put aside uh, for a rainy day or put aside for savings that his family could use for something, a vacation or something good. And unfortunately, it had to go to this. Is there a lesson other people can take away from this? Apparently, his lesson is don't get a flu shot. Sure, which you want to be cautious because most people should get a flu shot. You know, people can die of the flu if you don't get it. But I think the lesson here is that when you call 911, um, that can start a cascade of events that can lead to a very substantial hospital bill. When you call 911, you're most likely going to be taken to a hospital. Now, if you have, if you think you're really having an emergency, absolutely call 911. Do not wait. And that's what we're told all the time. And you see all these advertisements from hospitals advertising the emergency rooms, and they're short wait times, so why not come on in? But you got to know, if you don't think this is a life or death situation or something life or limb, you want to be a little bit cautious. Do I really need there? Maybe an urgent care where you can be evaluated. Maybe you can get into your primary care doctor um, before going to a hospital and having such, such a large bill. Well, good. Thank you very much, Phil Gelwitz. You're welcome. Okay, we are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Margo, you have already done yours. Anna, why don't you go next? Um, Mine is in Bloomberg Business Week by my colleagues Cynthia Coons and Robert Langrith. Um, It's ketamine could be the key to reversing America's rising suicide rate, and it takes a very deep look at a drug, um, which ketamine is a club drug, is how a lot of us, you know, might have heard of it, and it's, you know, called Special K, and but it's actually possibly, you know, having these uses in the far- on the pharmaceutical side, um, and, you know, is able to work pos- on, it seems to be able to work on depression and different things. And so what they followed was it's coming up to possibly be approved as a drug to help with suicide. What I thought was really fascinating about this is the insight into suicide and it being something that researchers who stumbled upon ketamine are looking at differently 
from depression and and suicidal ideation being its its own thing and the actual um there was a guy in the story that they based their their research the the light bulb moment was a guy who was impaled um with a an I think it was an iron bar or something like that and he lived but he had no inhibition any like it just was completely gone and what so they were able to see the part of the brain that is you know enacts inhibition and since they think that that is where suicide might live um and so i thought it was a fascinating story to get a, a different look at suicide because when someone does commit suicide you hear well we didn't know that he was depressed and maybe this is because it's a totally different thing Interesting. Alice. I was looking at a very scary public health story um, from the Washington Post by Lena Sun and Maureen O'Hagan about the measles outbreak in Washington state and other states. But it's particularly bad in Washington state. There is an extremely um, organized and large anti-vaccine community. um, And a large, large number of school-aged children are unvaccinated. And Washington State is one of uh, several that allows uh, parents to opt out of vaccinating their children, not just for religious reasons, which is very common among Orthodox Jews and Mormons and other groups, but also for philosophical reasons. Um, And there is a very scary large outbreak. It's extremely contagious. Um, You can walk into a room that a infected person was in hours ago and catch it. <laughs> yeah, measles lives a really long time. Yes. And so the, the the story focused on a mother with a baby that's just eight weeks old and too young to be vaccinated. And she's just terrified to leave the house. She's terrified to go to the supermarket um, because of the risk of exposing um, her baby. And so what I found most interesting um, is what the um, health officials are trying to do to combat this. And they're doing some non-traditional things, including deploying several state officials just to counter misinformation on Facebook and write lengthy responses to um, these anti-vax groups that are posting a lot of misinformation, things about, oh, you can take essential oils instead of measles vaccines and things like that. And also um, meeting one-on-one and in small groups with parents who are on the fence and are scared and are hearing a lot of information from different places. And um, it's just a different attitude. And so they're they're taking hours to sit and answer every single question, explain the exact science of how vaccines work and why they're safe. And um, that is apparently more helpful than the sort of hectoring, vaccinate your kids or you're a monster sort of message that, that um, has <clears throat> been more prevalent and has led to some pushback. So um, there's super depressing yeah. research that shows that it's extremely difficult to persuade people about the value of Definitely. vaccines if they're against them. Absolutely. I mean, it's a natural response to sort of double down on your beliefs. Although I will point out that now that we're having this outbreak, there's suddenly a, a surge in demand for right. measles vaccine. So right, at right, least right. those people in the middle are being affected. All right. Well, mine is from NPR. It's by Ashley Lopez from KUT in Austin, and it's called Texans Can Appeal Surprise Medical Bills, But That Process Can Be Draining. Uh, and it's sort of good news, bad news on the surprise <laughs> bill front. Texas has made it easier for our patients to appeal inadvertent out of network health bills, but the process is still confusing and cumbersome, and uh, the eye-popping stats in the story are many. In Texas, the number of bills the state 
program received to mediate more than doubled from fiscal 2017 to 2018. On the other hand, the good news is the state did did manage to negotiate $9.7 million worth of medical bills down to $1.3 million last year. So there is some progress, but it is still a big problem. And I think what this shows is that even if Congress wants to address it, addressing it in a way that will make it user-friendly is going to be a challenge. So that is our show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Alice Alstein. At Anna Edney. At Sanger Katz. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.